Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Today we're going to be talking Labour and Keir Starmer, the situation in Ukraine, refugee policy, while Alistair has spent his weekend mugging up on the Northern Ireland Protocol and is chomping at the bit to talk about it. We've got a staggering amount of questions again on Twitter and email this week. I think we've got over 850 questions. So thanks so much to everyone who sent those in. We'll look to get through as many as we can in tomorrow's Question Time episode. So Alistair. Shall we start with Keir Starmer and Labour? Before we get on to Labour, uh, there was a question from somebody called Fred Banning. Rory was excellent on BBC Question Time last week, and he's asking whether I trained you for it. Now, Rory, I just want to give you a couple of... I, think, I see parts of my role in this podcast as toughening you up a bit as a politician, OK? So I'm going to start today, before we get on to all those wonderful subjects you mentioned, with a couple of lessons, if I may. <laughs> The first is there is a place in politics for blatant plugging and promotion. If we didn't have blatant plugging, how would we even know that Boris Johnson's slogan at the election was get Brexit done, which he hasn't managed to do? So, Rory, if you are co-presenting the country's number one podcast, which has been top of the charts now for the last couple of weeks without a break, and which has just launched its own version of Question Time, which, by the way, listeners, will be on in your feed tomorrow morning, and you get onto the original BBC Question Time, there is no excuse in the world not to plug it. So can you please, before we get going, defend yourself? Well, I guess the answer is I, I get a little embarrassed. I mean, I, I, I sort of think that they've employed me to talk about politics rather than try to promote our show. Can I suggest how you might have done it? OK, go on then. When the Tory and West Streeting for Labour were having a little go at each other and talking over each other, you just put your hands up and you say, Fiona, I think you're aware I've launched a new podcast with Alastair Campbell. It's called The Rest is Politics. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why it's top of the charts, because we agree, dis we, we disagree agreeably, <laughs> right? Easy. Took you five <laughs> seconds and then you make your point. Now, my second lesson today is about rebuttal. Rebuttal is unbelievably important. And I, in the last two episodes, Rory, have given, have let you drone on for about eight minutes about austerity. Okay? <laughs> and I've had some which, which shows I'm really effective, Alistair. I'm no, pretty... it doesn't. It shows that I let you sort of, I pull you in and I let you, you get you the arguments failed. out there. No, because I'm about to show you what rebuttal really sounds like. Because amongst those 850 questions, we had a lot saying that I was far too nice to you, that I was disagreeing far too agreeably. 
And I have to tell you, it was deliberate because I wanted to get these responses in. So I'm going to throw a few at you now. And I may, because you've already had eight minutes in the subject, I may give you 10 seconds at the end to respond. Holly <laughs> Stafford, Rory defended austerity, but it was done on the backs of the poorest. Austerity and cuts have ruined my son's childhood. Autistic spectrum develop, uh, assessment. Uh, cuts in NHS funding. Mental health cuts. It is life ruining. Lisa Tiles, Alistair should have pressed him more. Even you agreed to cuts how and where they made. These are political choices. They were aimed at the poorest. Chris Wilbers, in defending austerity, you said that oh, the only option was higher taxes. Austerity hit the poor hardest, and that is why we have no libraries, NHS struggling, poor local government. George Dokimakis, Rory ignores growth. It is growth that reduces austerity. Austerity hit growth. We saw that in Greece. We saw that in the UK. So I just want to say specifically to your points last week, the economy was recovering from the recession at the time that you lot brought in austerity and austerity set it back badly. There was no sign of the market panic and the run on sterling you talked about. Deficits always rise in recession and they fall in growth. That's called the automatic stabiliser. And we, unlike Greece, have our own central bank. So there is no chance whatsoever of the UK running out of money. And I'm going to send you, Roy, I'm going to send you a wonderful article. Uh, and I don't know if we can do that, put it in the show notes thing. But if we can, we should put it in the show notes. A wonderful, it's more than an article, it's a mini book by the economist Paul Krugman called The Austerity Delusion. And that, I'm afraid, is what I think you are continuing to defend. A political choice made for political reasons. And the reason why you saw a chart this week where the only major country in the world below us in terms of growth forecast for next year is Russia is partly because of austerity. And that was happening long before COVID and long before Ukraine. You have 30 seconds to respond, Mr. Stewart. Well, I think the first thing to say, Alistair, is that I think what you've said on the shows for the last two, three weeks is the reason we're the worst performing economy. You, you normally blame on Brexit. Now you're blaming it on austerity. No, I'm saying austerity was, this was happening before Brexit. I've told you before, it's ABC, austerity, Brexit, COVID. They have left us in this terrible state, plus the worst leader. Anyway, you've had your 30 okay. seconds. Do no, you wait, wait, want to get wait, on to Labour? Go, go on. Let's, 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 let's try, let's try, let's try uh, a bit of a response. So I think the first thing is there's something to be said for all those responses. I think it's difficult to prove the counterfactual, difficult to know what would have happened had it not, had people not reduced spending. But you can look at other countries that didn't, and they're doing better. No, you talked about a lot, Germany. A lot, a lot depends on the structure of your economy. But Germany, for example, proceeded with a very similar form of austerity package and had very good sustained economic growth. So there's not a simple equation here. And one of the challenges is, I think, really probably the best challenge that was put forward is the question of where the cuts happened. Yeah, I think it's quite difficult to argue that a deficit of 140 billion and debt that was travelling through a trillion would have been very, very difficult if it had kept going. Now, you're right, you can gamble. And this is, of course, what Krugman and others argued, that in a crisis caused by borrowing too much and spending too much, paradoxically, the way you get out of it is by borrowing more and spending more. But that slightly depends on whether you're making productive investments. The biggest challenge, though, I think, from all that is people who say where those cuts fall. And here I want to uh, actually say something which is going to make me unpopular with conservative colleagues and probably unpopular with listeners. I think one of the big mistakes is that instead of making spending cuts across the board, famously, the NHS was protected, education to some extent was protected, and of course, international aid rose very dramatically in that period. 
Nearly six billion pounds a year more was put well, into surely, the Well, surely you wouldn't have added that to the cuts. Well, I, I definitely would. I think, actually, if you're going to do it properly... You, Mr. International Development, would have cut international development at that time. I think one of the reasons why we ended up with the cut we've got now is that it became mad. We doubled spending on international aid while we were cutting welfare very, very dramatically. I think many it's just that we've, got a different, we've now got a different set of politicians making different political choices. They were both political choices. But actually, in, interestingly, I remember discussing this with Bill Gates. And he was, like me, a huge defender of the 0.7%. But like me, he thought it was completely mad to be imposing austerity cuts on every other department and somehow leaving international aid out of it. And actually, Labour, of course, got in trouble. And I think they were right to say cuts should fall on the NHS as well. I think one of the problems was that by taking certain departments out of it, it meant that the cuts on other departments, on the environment, for example, were, and on welfare particularly, were much more brutal. The reason why Paul Krugman calls it a British delusion is sadly because the Labour Party did start to say, echo some of the things that, uh, that the Conservatives are saying and doing. And I think that, that should take us... We've now done the deficit, Rory. You've, had, you've now had t 11 minutes. <laughs> uh, we're not going to agree on this. And I'll just, if I may close, the International Monetary Fund said it massively underestimated the impact that austerity would have on weakening economies. And I'm afraid we are now seen as a weakening economy. Now, I'm going to let, I'm gonna let a very wicked cat out of this room that's making chaotic noises. Oh, he's having a red belt day. We, we, I don't know how many listeners we've repelled with our conversation, but definitely one white cat has been driven <laughs> good, out. Good, good. Well, uh, even even down the line, I'm allergic to cats. So do you want to, get, you want to, you want to turn to Keir? Let's just have a – sorry, just, just one final thing, though. The question of the difficulty of what I've just said, which is that actually across many departments, reducing spending would have worked better if it had been shared equally, if there hadn't been protected departments. And the problem is, as you can imagine, because you've just done it to me, what I've just said is politically very, very offensive. People are like, what? You're trying to cut international aid? What? You're trying to cut the NHS? But the truth is, those were huge increases yeah, in spending. That question from, from Lisa Tiles is absolutely right. Even if you agree there should be massive cuts, and I don't think we've settled that debate, by the way, and the IMF suggests that they're more with me than you on that one, how and where were political choices? And by the way, I think Cameron's focus on international development was basically to say, OK, you all think I'm a bit of a bastard because I'm cutting all this stuff, but hey, look at me, I'm not doing international and, aid. And health. Well, if he didn't have health, it would have been suicide for him. And I think it was exactly, but it was a purely political calculation. Interestingly, Labour Thank tried you, you've to admitted say, it was a purely political calculation. It was not economic. And no, 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 the decision to protect those departments was a political calculation. Right. And in fact, they actually attacked Labour. Labour, I think, much more responsibly in 2010 said they would have cut health. Mm. And the Tories turned it round and threw it back. And Alistair Darling's deficit plan involved imposing the cuts equally on all departments, which I think probably would have been a more responsible and fairer way of approaching I think, it. I think we can, if there's one thing I would absolutely agree with you, is that Alistair Darling was a more responsible and more efficient Chancellor than either George Osborne or Rishi Sunak. Now, you're the one who wanted to talk about Keir Starmer. Do you want to talk about Keir Starmer or don't you? Yeah, I do want to talk about Keir Starmer. So um, when we went into, so we, we had that event where we sat with two big audiences and struggled to find anyone to come up with policies. The most dramatic thing of all is what on earth was he doing in Prime Minister's questions? You know, you're the football expert, but I've never seen an open goal like Boris Johnson coming out of that no confidence vote. And somehow Starmer completely muffed it. It was extraordinary. Even your great enemy, Quentin Letts, was 
looking at it completely appalled, saying that this is one of the great opportunities to weaken Boris Johnson. Oh, sorry, sorry. You mean Quentin Letts was saying that the Labour leader failed? Well, there's a shock. Um, <laughs> no, but what, he, what he's good at, what he's good at is he senses, and it's something I felt as a member of Parliament, there are moments in Parliament where if you really get it right, you can do a lot of damage. And that was a moment yeah. where Boris was really teetering. And if Keir Starmer had been really effective, I think it would have really contributed to undermine him. Well, I'll tell you what I think about what's going on at the moment. And I, I don't know this because I wasn't involved in the discussions. I'm imagining that he chose on that day to do six questions about health, I think it was, as a way of saying, while you lot are fighting each other and destroying each other, we're focused on things that re- you'd say you're focused on things that matter to people. We really, really are. Added to which the health service is in a bit of a, uh, a bit of a mess at the moment. And he thought that was the way to do it. Now, I don't think it worked. Um, but I think more broadly, I think one of the problems that we often say, I mean, I've talked a lot to people in previous Labour campaigns about this, and you'll know this as well. There's always a danger in campaigns, particularly if you're in government, that you fight the last campaign, not the next one. But I actually feel that the Labour Party in opposition is still trapped in the parameters of the last war, not the next one. So I think, for example... I mean, look, I, I was talking to somebody in the shadow cabinet recently who told me this. My, I, I, I almost exploded. But actually, said, I said, look, I honestly, look, I accept that I really, really can't stand Boris Johnson. And maybe sometimes in my public utterances, I might go over the top. But honestly, I think you lot are too soft. This is the worst, most corrupt, most useless, lying, incompetent prime minister and government we've ever had. And I think you're too soft. And this guy said, well, I think there's a bit of a feeling that if we attack him too hard, it means we're attacking Brexit. And I thought, oh, my God. And this goes back to the point I keep saying to you. Forget what's happened in the past. Shape a vision for the future and policies for the future. It's also really puzzling, isn't it? Because actually Keir Starmer did a really good job in that great speech after the first fine was imposed on Boris Johnson. Yeah. And really took control of the chamber. I just can't understand what he was doing because the Conservative Party, I've been in that situation. I was in that situation with Theresa May. The backbenchers will have been feeling very nervous, very embarrassed. Mm. Boris Johnson walked into the chamber. There wasn't much cheering, very, very desultory support for him. Mm. Huge open goal. And Keir Starmer decides somebody with just a little bit of oomph, a little bit of a sense of humour would have been able to really weaken Boris at that moment. Which, as you say, he did have that first time around and it did work. And I don't know, maybe he thought you can't do the same thing twice. But the other thing, it's interesting there that you... But your lesson, Alistair, is you... Do the same thing, not just twice, but three times. Ten, thousand, hundred, million times. You do. But you have to do it, if you're the leader of the opposition, alongside, constantly, you're projecting a strategy and a vision about what would be different. Now, where I'm utterly with you on this one, look, what do people say about Keir? They say he's a bit dull. I don't find him dull, but a lot of people do. They say he's got no charisma. They say he lacks oomph. You use the word oomph. That is what I hear all the time. He doesn't like, he lacks oomph. Now, in a way, a bit like Schultz has done in Germany, a bit like Merkel used to do. If that's what it is, you have to embrace that. You actually have to say, I'm so different to you. Because do you know what? I believe in the rule of law. Do you know what? I've got integrity. Do you know what? I don't lie the whole time. And that's why you're in the mess that you're in. And I'm why I'm able to stand here. But then, and say to the public, we do this and this and this and this. And I think it's that they're, I do think they're slightly trapped in the demographics and the politics of a few years ago. Whereas the world has changed. I, I, I agree with you. And I also think there's a way to do it. I think there's a way that Keir Starmer could have remained honest to who he was and still pointed out that nearly three quarters of Boris Johnson's MPs, backbench MPs, had turned against him that vote. 
Do you know what? I saw I saw you on um, somewhere or other. Uh, it wasn't question time. Somewhere else, but I saw you making the point about Labour keep. They've fallen into the trap of using this figure of forty one percent of MPs. It's seventy five percent of backbenchers. Seventy three and four. You know, if I'd have been Keir Starmer, I'd have been going three out of four of you lot agree with me, like Ian Blackford did this a little bit. Come on, stand up, identify yourselves. Where are you? Show the courage of your convictions. Yeah. Yep. And exactly, you could have stood up and said, I'm deeply proud of the Conservative Party. Well done, guys. Now, you spineless Muppet not nodding dogs on the front bench, when are you going to find a little bit of the spine that they've shown and tell this rotten crook he's got to go? Now, Alistair, let's get on to an uncomfortable subject. So, Wes Streeting, who I know you're yes. an admirer of, and you, you like and you often defend. I was on Question Time with him, and I was very struck by the fact that he was so reluctant to criticize the the rail workers union the rmt over the strikes and it was really interesting three times when people pushed back and pointed out that actually the rmt is a very effective union they have got pretty good terms and conditions for a lot of their staff signalers on forty four thousand pounds a year on southern i believe drivers of on extraordinary contracts where a lot of the driving they do is on overtime when people try to point this out and point out some of the problems that other people had getting into work he three times used the phrase, you are pitching one lot of workers against another. Mm. I, I think that's a mistake of Wes Streeting. I don't know why he chose that particular hill to die on. Mm. Look, I, I've got to be honest. I didn't watch the whole program. I watched the stuff that was kind of pushed out by Question Time and the stuff that you tweeted, the stuff that he tweeted, the stuff that the Tory tweeted, etc. By the way, I did think the Tory looked like a frightened rabbit. Uh, I don't know if that's if you got that impression. Well, no, but that was very tough for him. I thought the guy from GB News looked like he'd been let out of a kindergarten for a day. Um, he's very I, flattered that you think he's so young, by the way. I think you called him, called him a boy, right? No, I said, I, I, I said that somebody said there's only one woman on the panel. And I said, yeah, but there is a child. <laughs> a bit harsh, but, you know. Um, I do think Question Time ought to have learned its lesson. I mean, without Question Time, I don't think Nigel Farage would have become the phenomenon he has. They do have this love of kind of extreme right-wing people. It's quite odd. So I think with Wes, the, I, the, the, the one clip that I saw of Wes where he really, really went for Johnson, I thought was very, very, very strong. And it was a little bit more like what I was doing a minute ago, in which I'd like to see Keir doing more of. Although that being said, by the way, I don't think Keir Starmer should become an attack dog. I think he has to have attack dogs doing the attacks on Johnson even harder than he does. But I think, with the, and I'm guessing, I didn't see the trade unions bit, but I'm guessing from hearing the various things that I've heard said by Labour front benchers, is that they're... It goes back to this thing about constantly going into a defensive crouch. They see this issue coming down the track. They sense the Tories are going to try to really politicise it and make it one of their sort of wedge issues, culture wars. They're in, they're in favour of strikes. We're not kind of thing. They want to disrupt your daily lives. We, we don't. And at the same time, because of the historic relationship with the trade unions, and to be fair, the fact that the Labour Party does believe in trade unions, does believe in, you know, as a last resort, the right to industrial action, doesn't believe that you should stop people, take away all these rights, particularly at a time that we're losing so many rights in other areas. I guess that's the the, the sort of the, the, the trap that he felt he was in. And, and they have, it's clear to me, if what you were saying is he was given that and you felt he was uncomfortable, that means the discussion going around the cabinet table and they haven't quite resolved it yet. And, and, and this, phrase, this phrase about you're pitching worker against worker, I thought was a very interesting. I mean, the fact he kept returning to that phrase was... I don't was, really know what that means, because what is he saying? But what you, he's saying is that people had said that nurses and school teachers were finding it difficult to get into work. And they were saying that the RMT basically oh, has a, a monopoly position, right? They, they, 
you don't have any alternative really other than to yeah. travel on their trains. Yeah. People were also pointing out that in France, Spain and Italy, this can't happen. That's not true, though. That's not true. Trains, in particular, France and Italy, are regarded as critical infrastructure and therefore people's rights to strike, particularly train drivers' rights to strike, is much more limited. I can't help noticing, Roy. Can I just make this interjection? Yeah. The, the, uh, and this is a point in your favour, but I wonder if you're trying to sort of gain points with me. Right behind your your hairline, that is the first volume of my diaries. I can recognise it. Yeah, I've, I've put in. It's a it's a <laughs> form of trolling. It. You've moved it. <laughs> <laughs> so no i well listen i've been in france when there's been industrial action on the railways um so i don't think that's right i mean maybe maybe our maybe our trusted goal hanger productions researchers while we're carrying on talking can put it in the chat box who's right who's wrong and i also think that there's an argument when people are in monopoly positions over critical infrastructure that you can think about the kind of approach that we take towards the police or prison officers, which is to think about public sector pay review bonds. Yeah, but I agree with that. But, but Rory, one of the problems on this, and I look, I talk to prison officers because I, I do prison visits and I know you do as well. And I also talk to police. And there is definitely a movement within both, I think, to say because we feel so disrespect, disrespected by the government, because we feel so underpaid, this is something that in future we're going to have to look at. Um, so that that I think is, in a funny sort of way, I think you're – you're p- helping to make the case that these public sector unions make, that they they feel so underappreciated, so um, undermined by this government, don't see any way of them getting into getting the sort of pay rise they want. And let's be honest, with, with soaring inflation, you're talking about pay cuts for all these people. You know, if, 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 if look, if a signal's on 44,000 and a nurse, junior teacher's on less than 30, prison officers are on very, very low. Mm. initial wages. I mean, I think there's, it's possible to argue that, look, the trains have been through a really, really tough time. And one of the issues here is about modernization. It's about defending manned ticket places in places where not many tickets are bought. And it's quite difficult to modernize and change the system. Now, mm. Tony's just written in saying, unionized rail staff will strike in the Auvergne region. So we need to look at detailed laws on trade union activity. And well, France, I think, I think what, what I think that is that Tony Blair or is that Tony Pastor, our producer? Because Tony's, Tony's obviously an avid listener to this. Yeah, um, he, and, and an expert on <laughs> Auvergne train strikes. too. <laughs> There's a very, amongst the many questions that we did get a lot of questions about Labour and Keir Starmer this week, but one from Matt McEwen. Why is Keir so scared to take some clear positions on so many issues? Is it fear or is it some weird kind of strategy? I think I can see the strategic purpose of not falling into elephant traps that are being laid by the government. But I honestly think this government is so bad and so unpopular. The country is crying out for strong, clear, principled positions. I, even on, the, even on the, the Partygate stuff, I would have loved it. For example, and this doesn't cost a single penny, if you'd have stood up and said, when we get signed into this place, you, me, all the other MPs in this house, we have to sign, we have to swear an oath to the Queen, our allegiance to the Queen. And and, we sh- and long may that continue. However, I believe we should also swear an oath of allegiance to the ministerial code. Does he, will he join me in that? You know, put some politics into this and yeah, get him yeah, yeah, on the back yeah. foot. I, I also think this point about clarity is a really good one. And it took me some time to, to learn in politics, because when I began, I was always saying on the one hand or the, on the other and trying to put in all the nuance and complexity. I think the public really feels that they have a right to clarity, have a right to know clearly what you think about things. And sometimes politicians just have to do what Keir Starmer sometimes seems reluctant to do, which is take the leap. Mm. You know, say, for example, 
if you've got to make a choice between being on the side of the public or on the side of the RMT, we're going to choose to be on the side of the public. And on that... Yeah, fine, fine. Hold on, Rory. Yeah. Uh, but on that, however, yeah. I think you also have to have positions of principle. And you, the other thing you mentioned, France, Germany, Italy, there, it's really interesting. When you do have industrial action in France and Germany, the coverage is always much more balanced between the two sides. Um, so, I'd, I look, I don't know enough about what was said and what the Labour Party position is, but I'm guessing they're just feeling a little bit trapped. But it goes back to the point I made on Brexit. They're trapped in debates and uh, demographics of the last war, not the next one. And if we talk about clarity on really complicated positions, after the break, we're going to talk about Northern Ireland. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, today's episode of The Rest is Politics is sponsored by the new European. They had an absolutely brilliant cover last week. They always do. Telling Boris Johnson to get lost. The L and the O, the number one and zero in number 10 on the big front door. And it was accompanied by an article from yours truly outlining that whatever small comfort he took from uh, his apparent survival, he still remains in massive trouble. Rory, if you had to guess, does he make it to party conference? Does he make it to Christmas? Does he make it to the election? When is he gone? I, I'm, I'm increasingly worried. I'm worried that he's going to try to cling on and it's going to be catastrophic for his party. It's going to be catastrophic for Britain. But I think he's going to try to cling on. He'll be there for some time to go. And the Privileges Committee report, when that comes? Do you think he'll get through that? I, th I think that's going to be devastating for him. And you've got to look at the composition of that committee. And actually, I, I know some of the conservatives on those, that committee, they're pretty honourable, straightforward people. And I think he will find himself in real trouble. That committee will almost certainly come out against him, but I think he'll still refuse to go. Wow. OK, well, let's see. Um, so we're coming up to the sixth anniversary of the New European. It was launched in the wake of the Brexit referendum, June 23rd, 2016. And we've been calling out the catastrophe of Brexit ever since. Uh, you can subscribe to The New European for just £1 a week for full digital access, including the full archive. Get all my columns over six years if you want them. Or if you like, get the actual paper between your hands. You can get that delivered each week, just £2 a week. These are the best deals you will get anywhere. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash trip, T-R-I-P. That's theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash T-R-I-P. Before we get into part two, just a small warning. We've said that we try to disagree agreeably, but you're about to hear for the next 25 minutes, Alistair and I getting into more of a slightly tetchy, old-fashioned argument. Don't worry, we make it up in the end, uh, but you have been warned.
So welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Alistair, listen, you've been doing a lot of work on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So over to you. Well, there's, there's a couple of things, really. The, the first is, I mean, last time we discussed this in depth, you did a very, very good explanation of what the protocol is, as it were. Um, but I think, you know, th- this is such a sort of complicated technical issue. And we were talking before the break about the need for clarity. So I'm going to try and make it reasonably clear. And, you know, I talked last week how I'd been had a meeting with Bertie Hearn, who was really, really worried, felt that relations between Dublin and London were worse than they'd been, worse than even Thatcher and, Hockey, and Charlie Hockey. This week I've been talking to Tony Blair. He is, his institute has published a paper about all this, which people, I think it's really worth going onto his institute website and reading. It's written by one of his policy fellows, a guy called Anton Spisak. And the thing is that when you, the two things you need at a time like this, when it's so difficult and so complicated, you need trust and you need leadership. And at the moment, there is so little trust and there is so little leadership. But what Tony's put forward is, a, is an outline proposal, if you like. He calls it a landing zone, where you can get to a place where, and it will require compromise on both sides, but you get to a place where you can obviate most of the checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You can compromise on this very thorny issue, for this, particularly for the right-wing Conservatives, about the role of the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union. And the other thing, which is getting very little attention, which is one of the most difficult things for the people in Northern Ireland, is you can give better consultative processes to Northern Ireland stakeholders in laws that are developed that have an impact there. I think it's very interesting. I mean, the only thing that makes me sort of sets off alarm bells for me is that it reminds me a little bit of some of the work that people tried to do during the Brexit negotiations, where mm. think tanks would come up with solutions to the Irish border. They'd say, you yeah. know, we can reduce these checks, we can use technology. I mean, yeah. in the end, a lot of this depends on what the European Union, the Republic of Ireland, is prepared totally. to sign totally. up for. Totally. I agree with that. But I think, I think that what makes this a little bit different to some of the think tanks that came forward with proposals then it is from somebody who is... <laughs> who has, knows this stuff inside out and knows how to negotiate with both the European Union and the Irish and the Unionists, etc. And that's why I think if Boris Johnson had any sense at all, he would just put in a call to people like Tony Blair and John Major uh, and say, look, can you come in through the back door one day? I'd really like you to pick your brains because their brains are full of this stuff. But so what the UK is proposing, and I'm going to try and be as neutral as possible here. I'm not going to criticise any of this. I'm just going to say this is what I think they are proposing. They think there should be a green lane for goods that are being sent by trusted traders from GB to Northern Ireland and a red lane if it's going on to the European Union. Okay? They think there should be a dual regulatory regime so that businesses there can, if you like, choose which of the regulatory regimes they want, UK, EU. They want an absolute change, end of EU VAT rules, end of EU state aid rules, and they want to remove any role for the European Union Court of Justice. Now, the the last bit in particular to the European Union, that says, well, in which case you're calling for a new treaty and we're not doing a new treaty because you agreed this. Where the European Union says it can be flexible is in some movement over customs, and they say they've done that already with these SPS products, they're called. There can be further movement on food produce, there can be further movement on medicines, and they do think that there should be better systems for the Northern Ireland stakeholders, but they cannot, they say, remove uh, the court, the role, role of the court. Can I just, I think this is brilliant, but can I just take the listeners back to the real basics here and then let you keep developing some of the, yeah. more, the details? So yeah. ba- basics here for listeners is that the way that Boris Johnson got his in inverted commas, oven-ready 
new great Brexit deal across the line was by signing up to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And yeah. the reason he signed up to it is that there cannot be a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic because the Good Friday Agreement, really important politically, that particularly for Republicans in Northern Ireland, that they feel that they're Irish citizens, they want to have full access to the Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. So he agreed effectively to put a border in the Irish Sea. Why? Well, because he wanted to make trade deals with other countries. And if he makes trade deals with other countries, he can bring goods into Britain on completely different terms from Europe, you know, bring in meats without 40% tariffs. And so Europe needs to have a customs border. Yeah, he didn't just agree, Rory. It was, it was in a sense, Britain was pushing for that. So it's in there. And that was the big change that they made so that they could get their Canada-style deal. And now he wants to turn around and rip it off, um, rip it up. Now, you're explaining what it is that they're proposing as an alternative. You're explaining what Europe might accept. But, and I'll, I'll let you do that for a little bit more. And then maybe we can get back to the politics of why this is happening. But go on. Yeah. I think this is fascinating. So tell us more. Well, I think, I think the, 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 the reason why the European Union feels so strongly that what the government is doing, and we're, we're recording this on Monday, so we've yet to see this draft legislation, but we've got a fair idea what it's going to say. But if you go back to the withdrawal agreement, Article 4, we, that's both sides, will ensure compliance, sorry, the UK will ensure compliance of its commitments made under the treaty through its domestic law. In other words, it is UK law that this treaty shall be respected, and part of the treaty is that any change to it has to be agreed by both sides. It cannot be agreed unilaterally, and what the government is saying is there are parts that we are going to do unilaterally. Now, that is an unbelievable break of trust. Uh, it does risk, although it will be a slow, long, slow process before we get to that, but it does risk a trade war between the EU and GB at, a, at the UK at a time when our economy is weakening, not strengthening. Um, and so what anyway, what Tony, Tony Blair's Institute's um, paper suggests, he, he's got some sympathy that the European Union have been, if you like, excessively bureaucratic in relation to all goods being checked and that there ought to be ways of of separating. In, in a sense, they should be treated according to what their final destination is, should be. There should be a new governance around this. And here's another area where you're going to need trust. There should be a really robust system of surveillance of the movement of goods through Northern Ireland, because, as you said, the European Union wants to ensure that the single market is not penetrated by goods from outside. And he also thinks he can see a way of getting better, better input from Northern Ireland uh, stakeholders. And the other thing, which I think is really interesting, is his idea that you extend the arbitration processes that are in for the withdrawal agreement, that you extend those to issues of trade. Now, he calls okay, it now, a let, 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 me, let, me, let me push back for a second. Okay, so mm-hmm. I think these all sound fine, but the big question is who's doing it and to whom? And I'm instinctively a little bit worried about anybody, doesn't matter whether it's Tony Blair or someone else, coming in with bright ideas. In the end, this is business for the elected members in Northern Ireland themselves. That's the way in which the protocol is set up. Well, it's no, not, hold on, it's not, hold on, it's not, hold on. not for the British government, not for Tony Blair, not for anyone else to come up. No, wait a minute, Rory, it's for the yeah. British government and the, and, the Euro- and the Irish government and the European Union to resolve this impasse, which at the moment, these polit- the politicians that you're talking about, particularly the DUP politicians, are hiding behind and thereby not getting the institutions up and running. And we're going to be very quickly, in October, if we're not careful, very quickly into another round of elections because we won't have got the institutions up. So it's not for the let, 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 let me push back. It is, it is. It is for the politicians, Norman. The fundamental thing here is the principle of consent. 
And the principle of consent goes through everything that happens in Orlando. The fact is that there was a very strong performance in the elections, which we celebrated for the alliance, mm-hmm. been a strong performance by uh, Republican nationalist parties. There are splits within the unionists. And in the end, what really matters here is the politics of Northern Ireland and the way that that's resolved and their legitimate presence in this whole thing. Yeah, but Rory, my, po- my point is they're, they're not going to resolve. They can't resolve this. They cannot resolve the impasse between the European Union and the UK. If, if what happens is that smart people, Tony Blair or others, come and try to come up with a scheme which is imposed on Northern Ireland without the consent of the alliance. Of course there's got to be consent. I'm not suggesting that. I'm okay. saying... It's, and got if, to be, listen, it's got to be driven the other way around. It's got to be no, driven... Of course, there's no. flexib- of course there's flexibility with you. Rory, you don't understand what I'm saying. The reason why somebody like Tony Blair wants to come up with ideas is because neither the government nor the politicians in Northern Ireland who are holding things up on the union side, they're not coming with ideas. Their only idea is to say, scrap the protocol. You scrap the protocol, you get a trade war. You scrap the protocol, you risk the Good Friday Agreement. So I don't know what you're saying. What are you saying? That people like Tony Blair and John Major should just shut up and let Boris Johnson carry on ballsing it all up? No, I'm saying exactly the opposite, right? I'm deeply, deeply against what Boris Johnson's doing for a whole series of things. Firstly, it breaks international law, catastrophic yeah. for our reputation, yeah. completely ignoring businesses in Northern Ireland, right? They have the most rapidly growing economy. Now, in fact, the only growing economy in the whole United Kingdom, apart from London, is in Northern Ireland. So hold on a minute. Hold on. Let me just jump in there. So you're saying let's leave it to these Northern Ireland politicians. They're the ones who are getting it in the ear the whole time from Northern Ireland businesses saying we actually quite like this protocol. I think you're reading Northern Ireland politicians. When I say Northern Ireland politicians, you're thinking only about the unionists. Right. I'm thinking about all the elected members. Right. Yes, I know you are. But I and I agree with what most of them are trying to do. But you're this is an impasse that's being created by the Northern Ireland, the, by the unionist politicians saying no, we are not going to the institutions. It's being created by Liz Truss and the ERG. We need to put the blame where it is. Okay, okay. The impasse, the, I'm talking now about the impasse in the Northern Ireland institutions being created by the unionists saying we are not going into that unless the protocol goes. I agree with you. The whole thing is driven by the ERG. And yet again, all of this stuff, Rory, our economy, our peace process in Northern Ireland, our relations with Europe, our trade, all being driven by the internal dynamics of your wretched former party. So one of the problems here is that none of this stuff doesn't matter whether it's the red lines or green lines or Tony Blair's proposal. It's got to be resolved, though. It's it's not going to solve the problem. That's not the way to solve it. That actually, Alistair, is one of the problems here, right? This idea that somehow we've got to rewrite the protocol is driving a lot of this. It's not, it can't be resolved now. Can't be resolved now. Rory, if you, if you want to get into, you want to get into the marching season, you want to get fresh elections. If there's no progress on this. I'm afraid, Alistair, you're falling into the trap, which is being set for you by the unionists. No, absolutely not. Rory, it's, honestly, I, I'm going to disagree disagreeably, if you're not careful. I think you're talking nonsense. I think you're talking absolute nonsense. This has got to be resolved. And it can, this is now at this level. I'd even go further. Alistair, Tony Blair's proposals, Tony Blair's proposals done in this way will not restore power sharing. No, no, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Uh, He is putting forward a plan for the UK government and the European Union because they have to resolve this impasse, which is happening at that level. And I'll tell you something else. It won't be done by Liz Truss. It won't be done by Brandon Lewis. Nor will it be done by Tony Blair. It's done by the EU. It's done by the EU. I'm I'm not asking for Tony Blair to do it. Rory, I don't know if you're doing this deliberately, but you're grabbing the wrong end of a very large stick. 
I'm not suggesting Tony Blair does it, and I'm not suggesting this is a foolproof plan. I'm saying this has to be resolved by the leaders of the European Union and Boris Johnson. It requires trust and leadership. Both have broken down. Northern Ireland politicians are not going to be able to resolve at that level. They can't do it. Let, let me take it back to what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that the idea that the way through is think tanks coming up with cunning plans. When have I said, Rory, you're talking absolute guff here. When did I say think tanks talk, should be allowed to you revolt, talk, resolve you this? You talked a great deal in detail about Tony I tried Blair's to explain plan, to our about listeners. About Tony and I'm, and I'm trying to say that that yeah. is not the key here. I didn't say it was the key. I said it was what he is proposing. Okay. And t- Okay, tell me what the government's plan is. Tell me what the government's plan is. The, the UK government's plan? Yes. It's terrible, Alistair. Right. I, I reject it totally. You're not listening to me at all, Alistair. I'm totally listening to you, but I think okay, you're talking then nonsense. Listen for a bit. Then shut up and listen for a bit. Okay, okay? I'm going to listen. Okay, okay. Number one. But don't say the same thing, because I've understood what you've said. What have I said? You've basically said that this is not going to be resolved by Tony Blair coming up with a plan. By the way, nor did I say that. I said this is what Tony Blair would pro- is proposing to the governments. And you're also saying that this should be left to the Northern Ireland politicians to resolve. And I'm telling you, that is not how this works. That's not what I'm saying. So in the end, this is about politics. It's not about technocratic plans. And that means two things, fundamentally. The first thing is the EU is central to this. Everything depends. Everything depends on the EU. And in the end, a lot of this doesn't need cunning plans. We already know the landing zone. There's nothing fresh here. And that's the problem with the way everybody's approaching this. It's not fundamentally about rewriting rules. It's about the way in which the EU chooses to treat things on that border. Oh, you're now now sounding like John Redwood. We're also setting up expectations in the wrong way. We are giving the impression through a lot of these conversations that there can be fundamental changes. There can't be fundamental changes. In the end, the message to the unionists has to be that the protocol in some form will remain. There can be some adjustments, but they will be minor adjustments around the edges. And the thing that worries me most about Tony Blair's proposals is they're setting up expectations which can't be met because the European Union will not accept them. Well, that's why he has set out what he thinks. And bear in mind, he probably talks to people in the European Union far more than Boris Johnson does. He's set out what he thinks the European Union would be prepared to accept and what they won't accept. They won't. Well, you say that and you may be right, you may be wrong. What what I can't get, because I normally think that you sort of listen to things, is you've decided that somehow, because I presented a, a, a paper, which I recommend you read, by the way, that Tony Blair's Institute has published, that somehow I'm saying that is the solution to this. I'm not. I'm saying the, oh, we have to find a way through this. It's not going to be done by Jeffrey Donaldson. It's got to, Boris Johnson has got to show some leadership. He's got to rebuild trust. And there are, there are places where the European Union will move if the UK will show a bit of understanding and also take ownership of the fact that they negotiated this in the first place. Okay, well, let, let, me, let me try one last time to explain what I'm saying. We, we have to be very, 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 very careful not to repeat the mistakes that happened a lot in Brexit, which is raising expectations that there is some magical alternative formula. Often when that happens, and we saw this again when people talked about technological solutions on these borders, mm. It raised expectations that couldn't be met because the European Union wouldn't make those concessions. What it actually does is deepen the suspicion and resentment because it allows people to say, well, here was a perfectly reasonable proposal and the EU rejected it. I would approach it in the other way. I would say the Northern Ireland Protocol is basically here to stay. 
it's not going to be changed much. And there are very fundamental reasons why it can't be changed very much. So you've lost the DUP already? Yes, and we have to be honest with the DUP about this. Right, but you've lost them. You've now lost them. They've heard what you've just said. If you're the government, you've now lost them. How do you get them back? Not by pretending to them. I'm not pretending anything. A politician cannot get the DUP back by pretending that there is a chance of delivering something from the EU which can't be delivered. Right, so you tell them what can be delivered. You tell them what can be delivered. Some, I'm afraid, much smaller changes than the DUP would like. And we need to be honest with the fact the DUP that the Northern Ireland Protocol will basically remain and the changes on that border will be much smaller than they want. You're sounding very like, you're sounding very like some of the Tories I talked to in the Good Friday Agreement negotiations who were constantly telling me, I don't know why you're bothering with this because the unionists are never going to let you let the Republican prisoners out early. The IRA are never going to decommission weapons. I, do, I just think, I think you're looking through the wrong end of a telescope. This, this is different. It may, you say it's different. It's a negotiation. It's a negotiation. It's different. What's different about it is that the EU is central to this. I, nobody's disputing that. The EU is central. And I think, despite Boris Johnson throwing heaps of abuse at them, despite his lies to them, I think they are still interested in trying to make this work. Within the framework of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the sort of concessions they will offer will be much smaller than people think. Um, and we need, and we need, we need to adjust those expectations now, or we're going to have misery. Yeah, well, you're not going to do that with Boris Johnson, and which is why grown-up politicians like Tony Blair and John Major, I think their voices are worth listening to. And I think just because he runs a think tank, he's no, he's, he's, and, and I think you've, I think you've totally got the wrong end of the stick on this. I just think, I, and I, th I think you're, I don't understand why you can't see that this has to be resolved soon. If we go into another round of marches, elections, the summer, and all that. This thing could unravel quicker than people realize. I actually think in some ways we are creating a mechanism for the DUP to ramp this up even more. It's actually very similar. It reminds me very much of the real miss that David Cameron did, which was pretending that he had a great landing zone with Europe during the lead up right, exactly, to the referendum. Exactly, exactly. Said there were all this fantastic deal he could get and then failing to get it. We talked about Keir Starmer earlier. Keir Starmer was in Ireland last week with Peter Carl, his Northern Ireland spokesman. And... From what I saw of the media coverage, there wasn't much here, but there was a lot in Ireland. Um, I got the feeling that they were actually taken more seriously than the government because they were actually trying to get right into the detail of you. If you're going to negotiate, this is in, this is now, whether we like it or not, it's another round of negotiations. And at the heart, of course, the European Union is incredibly important, but the Good Friday Agreement and its workings are right at the heart of this. And we've now got a situation where the relations between London and Dublin have never been worse and where relations between North and South have never been worse. The unionist politicians don't have virtually no contact with the South now at all. That's got to be rebuilt. So, so I think, strangely, this is being approached too technocratically and we're not being honest about the politics here. When you say we, who's we? Well, I genuinely think that the way in which it's being spoken about, this sort of pragmatic, technocratic... By who? But when you say we, you're talking about governments or us? No, I'm, I'm still referring to the idea that somehow it's possible for you or Tony Blair to come up with some solution that's going to sort this out before the marching season, is not taking into account the fact that what's really happening is the politics. And the real politics is that the ERG is not interested in these kinds of compromises. That's why they're a malign, evil force. Yeah, and that's what we need to focus on. It's the only way to understand what's really happening here. Okay. What's really happening here is that Liz Truss is making a bid to be the Tory leader. She's whipped up the ERG. She's taken extremely, uh, increasingly extreme position. Interestingly, actually, today she seems to have backed out of making her statement. 
But what does the ERG really want? They want to refight the most extreme version of Brexit. They want to essentially say that they're not going to accept borders anywhere, and they're going to challenge the European Union to set a hard border up on the Republic. So their whole strategy is to refuse to do anything between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and to put the pressure on the European Union by effectively daring them to put a border between the Republic and Northern Ireland. Perfectly happy to focus on that, merely to reiterate what I've thought all along. And as I said earlier, every single step of this journey through the European quagmire has been about the internal workings of the Conservative Party. It's never about the national interest. That's why these people repel and disgust me they're, that what they're, they're, they're holding the whole of our political system to ransom and Boris Johnson's letting them and Liz Truss is encouraging them. They're disgusting people. Which is where, why the focus has to be on stopping the government taking through this law. And it's a distraction trying to come up with cunning plans for an alternative settlement. The key thing is to understand they're not interested in an alternative ah, settlement. Okay, they're, okay. Not inter- they're not interested, Alistair, in an alternative settlement. We can find common ground. You should have said that right at the beginning. If you'd have said right at the beginning, we have to stop them doing this, I'd have been with you, right? But this government has still got its majority. It can take 12 months to get this thing through, keep Brexit in the headlines, keep all this blah, 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 we're getting Brexit done nonsense. But these ERG people, I'll tell you where they should be focused on them. Instead of them being covered by most of our media, like there's some sort of commentators, this guy, David Frost, for example, how the hell can he walk into a studio to give his opinion about everything to do with the Tory party without being absolutely torn limb from limb over the fact he negotiated this? Okay, so the question is, how do we make the argument to stop the law going through? And the way to make that argument is by focusing on the fact that, firstly, obviously, it's breaking international law and our reputation. Secondly, it's breaking the principle of consent. But the whole of the Good Friday Agreement, the whole of the Northern Ireland Protocol, in the end, has a principle of consent which rests with that assembly. And if we alienate people in Northern Ireland, not just unionists, but alienate the alliance at the moment, we're going to find ourselves in a big, big trouble in keeping the union together. So I think that's the second argument for the Tories. Thirdly, it's ignoring business. Conservative Party is meant to be a party of business. Northern Ireland's doing very, very well economically. Fourthly, it won't solve the problem. In the end, everything is going to come down to detailed decisions by the EU on that border. And finally, it's not going to restore power sharing because it's going to take months for this bill to go through and it's not going to make any difference to power sharing or none. Those are the arguments I think we need to make, not getting into the weeds of what an alternative deal with Europe might be. All right, you've you've gone from we've got to leave this to the Northern Ireland politicians to now we've got to stop the UK politicians doing what it is they say they're going to do. Uh, I agree with you on the, I'd love to be able to agree with you on the former. That's only going to happen if we get the institutions up and running again. We're only going to get the institutions up and running again if we get this resolved at the top level. Just taking a step back from it, I guess that's the first time in however long we're doing, it's three, four months, we've really got pretty close to an argument. And I remember actually going through that, how weird these kinds of arguments are. And I'd love to know what the listeners make of it. I actually feel when I'm having the argument, my pulse rate goes up. And I'm actually sort of struggling to control my vocal cords sometimes, as mm. well as trying to think. Well, I, I, I think there's two things I think worth saying. The thing is, as you know, you know this from previous discussions, of all the things I despise this government for, their fast and loose cavalier approach to the Good Friday Agreement is right up there. It, even probably for me, right up there with the lies told on Brexit. It's right up there. And it makes my blood boil. It makes my blood boil the way that they're doing it. And so when I know you're trying to be reasonable and I know you're trying to sort of just sort of pick arguments apart, and I get that, 
But I, f I did think you were going at it through the wrong end of the telescope. And I think we got to a more agreeable position. Argu arguments, arguments are really weird, aren't they? I love arguments. I love having Re reflect arguments. No, but I'm not sure how, I mean, I'm not sure we went off on the right track because obviously we both agree that what the government's doing is awful. Both of us really want to make sure they don't break international law. And yet somehow we managed to get ourselves into nearly half an hour of intense sort of. But that's because it matters. That's because it matters. And at the end of it, we're not going to fall out of it. But I'll tell you, I've been in those rooms. Read the Irish Diaries by Alastair Campbell. I've been in those rooms where those sorts of arguments can very quickly go to violence. And I don't just mean violence of a bit of fisticuffs between two blokes. I mean violence. And therefore, I think it's important that you do, we do have that intensity when it really, really matters. And I don't, I, by the way, don't, I didn't feel that was a, I didn't feel I was losing any respect for you or any understanding of what you were saying. I was struggling to see why you were coming at it from that angle. And that's sometimes because I, maybe I think about these things so much, I can't quite understand why people don't see it like I do. Well, also, also I'm, not, I'm not even sure that it's true that the disagreement was that big. I mean, it's a really interesting that we got stuck into, I don't understand what you're talking about. How can you possibly be saying this? I mean, almost at times it sounded like you thought I was defending the ERG or I was defending the decision to rip up the protocol when all I was doing was having a go at your mate, Tony Blair. <laughs> well, maybe you ought to do that. Look, let's not, let's not leave on, on, on bad terms. We've got question time tomorrow. So let's start. Let's bring forward one of the questions I was going to put yesterday from Chris Callahan. He says, I love you both. But who would win a four-length swimming race at Alistair's Lido? Well, oh, blimey. Hey, tell me, the thing, that, thing I'm most worried about after this conversation is, is the boxing match, not the thing. I, that's, that's what I'm really concerned about. I think I hear you've been uh, you know, doing a bit of boxing training. So that's, yeah, that's I the do. thing. I, I do. That's, that's the thing. That's, maybe that's what we should do next time. What, a charity fight? Yeah, maybe a final descent into celebrity madness could be that uh, we could... No, we I've, could... Already, I've, I've already descended way lower than that. Anyway, it's lovely to talk to you as ever, and we're back tomorrow with The Rest is Politics, Question Time, as not plugged on BBC Question Time. Um, yeah, and really sorry that we didn't get to Ukraine. And we're going to definitely, <laughs> we're, we're going to, we'll tackle that in, in uh, Rest is Politics, Question Time, which is just, just coming out next day. And uh, a real lesson for us not to get dragged too much down rabbit holes. I, I, it's gonna. It, there's a very, very interesting question. It wasn't a rabbit hole about the celebrity. Don't revisit fight, the argument, which is Rory. The fundamental question is: How much is Alistair's height and reach going to make a difference? Big. I think he's more in the heavyweight category, and I think that could be a bit difficult when he connects. You may be absolutely right about that. Beautiful. All right, Alistair. Thank you very much. Much love. See you soon. See you soon. Bye bye. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.